Innalhamdalillah Nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'ufiruh Wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa sayyati a'malina Man yahdihillahu falamudillalah Wa man yudlil falahadiyalah Wa ashadu an la ilaha illallahu wahdahu la sharika lah Wa ashadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh Amma ba'd Carrying on then from where we left off last week with Kashf Ashubuhat, we got to the section where we were talking about the individual, the Sunni, having a weapon and a defense for himself against the falsehood that he may encounter. And that this weapon, it is knowledge. Having knowledge and understanding of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, understanding the evidences, the principles, and therefore understanding how to repel the doubts that come his way, then that is the weapon the believer has. But as for the one who doesn't have that, meaning he doesn't have the knowledge, doesn't have the understanding, doesn't understand the principles, then he is the one that you fear for. And the Shaykh, the author, had said, وَإِنَّمَا الْخَوْفُ عَلَى الْمُوَحِّدِ الَّذِي يَسْلُكُ الطَّرِيقِ وَلَيْسَ مَعَهُ سِلَاحِ That the fear is upon the person of Tawheed, who treads upon the path, but without a weapon, without any defense, meaning without knowledge, and without understanding. وَقَدْ مَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَيْنَا بِكِتَابِهِ الَّذِي جَعَلَهُ تِبْيَانًا لِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ وَهُدًا وَرَحْمَةً وَبُشْرًا لِلْمُسْلِمِينَ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has bestowed upon us with his book that he made a clarification for everything and a guidance and mercy and glad tidings. And as a consequence, the author then says, meaning as a consequence of the Qur'an, being a clarification of all of the affairs, as a consequence of us having the evidences, having that knowledge provided to us in the revelation, as a consequence of us having all of that, فَلَا يَأْتِي صَاحِبُ بَاطِلٍ بِحُجَّةٍ إِلَّا وَفِي الْقُرْآنِ مَا يَنْقُضُهَا وَيُبَيِّنُ بُطْوَانَهَا Then as a consequence, there is not any individual who comes with falsehood, with whatever evidence he brings, except that in the Qur'an there will be that which nullifies and opposes and rebukes and falsifies 
what this person of misguidance brings. That's a bit like what Shaykhul Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned, that if a person comes to you with an evidence from the Qur'an, or any authentic evidence, even if it's an authentic hadith, if a person of innovation, a person of misguidance, comes to you with an authentic evidence, like an ayah of the Qur'an, then you can use that exact evidence that he came to you with to try and support his falsehood, you can use that exact same evidence to refute him. Because the very fact that he is trying to use an authentic evidence to prove his falsehood must mean that he is using the evidence in some incorrect way, in some incorrect understanding, some incorrect interpretation, because the authentic evidences of the Qur'an and the Sunnah would never be a proof for misguidance and bid'ah and innovation and any type of falsehood. The Qur'an and the authentic Sunnah would never be a proof for innovations and misguidances. So if a person of misguidance comes to you trying to prove his misguidance, some falsehood, some innovation he's upon, by using an ayah of the Qur'an, or an authentic hadith from the sunnah, then you know you can use that same ayah, or that same authentic hadith, and turn it back on him. By giving him, the correct understanding of it. He's obviously using it in some false understanding to try and prove his misguidance. So you give him that same authentic evidence back with the correct understanding. And so his own evidence he was trying to use becomes an evidence against him. One of the examples they give of that, and we've mentioned it before, many a time during Kitab al-Tawheed, during al-Wasatiyya, the ayah in the Qur'an as an example of this principle, لَا تُدْرِكُهُ الْأَبْصَارِ وَهُوَ يُدْرِكُ الْأَبْصَارِ That the eyesights cannot encompass Allah. So the people of misguidance come to you with an ayah of the Qur'an telling you that the eyesights cannot encompass Allah. So we're not going to be able to see Allah. It's impossible to see Allah, they say. Your evidence? They say ayah in the Qur'an. The eyesights of us, we cannot comprehend Allah. That's a proof, therefore we cannot see Allah. So here you have a person coming to you with an ayah of the Qur'an, trying to use it to justify his false position, his incorrect position of believing that we can never see Allah, 
in the afterlife. So now, as Shaykh al-Islam said, use that same evidence back on him with the correct understanding of it, and it becomes a refutation of him. So that ayah then, the eyesight cannot comprehend Allah. We say, absolutely, you're right. But the actual act of comprehension in the context of seeing something and comprehending something, comprehension of something can only occur after seeing it. If I say to you now, describe my phone, it's in my pocket, nobody's seen it. How can you possibly comprehend what my phone is and what it looks like and what color the cover is? You cannot comprehend anything. So what is the purpose of me even asking you to describe it yet? When I know you cannot, because you cannot comprehend it, because you have not even seen it but if i show you the phone and then i say now tell me now maybe you'll have a level of comprehension you'll have a level of comprehension you'll say okay it's an iphone it's the model six this that the other you'll be able to give some details but will you still have a complete comprehension if i say now give me the complete comprehension of it Tell me right now how many WhatsApp messages there are coming up. How many right now in my phone? By looking at it, you can't tell me. What memory is this one? They come in the different memory sizes. What is this one? You can see the phone. Tell me what is it? You don't know. So even by seeing something, you can see it, but you may not necessarily fully comprehend it. If you can't see it in the first place, then obviously you cannot comprehend it at all. So when Allah tells us in the Quran that the eyesight will not be able to comprehend him, then this is a proof that they will be able to initially see him. Because if the point of the ayah was that we just cannot see Allah, then it would have just said the eyesights are not going to be able to see. But the comprehension is mentioned in the ayah. And the only purpose of mentioning comprehension is because there must be prior to that seeing. If there wasn't any seeing, then obviously there's no comprehension and that wouldn't make any sense then. Then you might as well say nobody's going to see Allah. But Allah said, they're not going to comprehend. So we will see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but we will not fully comprehend our Lord from the might and the majesty of Allah. So now the very same ayah has become a proof against him. He's trying to use the ayah that our eyesight cannot comprehend Allah is a proof we cannot see Allah. You've now explained to him actually the tafsir of this ayah is an indication and a proof that the reason why comprehension is being negated is because the seeing 
and the sight will be there initially. And that's just from this ayah. When you put together all of the other evidences, it completely crushes the false belief of those who believe that we will never see Allah even in the afterlife, or rather in the actual afterlife. Because our belief is we cannot see Allah in this world, but we will see Him in the afterlife. So that's the point he makes here. فَلَا يَأْتِي صَاحِبُ بَاطِلٍ No person of misguidance comes with any evidence. إِلَّا وَفِي الْقُرْآنِ مَا يَنْقُضُهَا وَيُبَيِّنُ بُطْلَانَهَا Except that in the Qur'an there will be evidence that clarifies the falsehood of what he is coming to you with or negates and nullifies that which he is coming to you with. كَمَا قَالَ تَعَالَى Just as Allah said, وَلَا يَأْتُونَكَ بِمَثَلٍ إِلَّا جِئْنَاكَ بِالْحَقِّ وَأَحْسَنَ تَفْسِيرًا That they do not come to you with any method, with any example or, or parable of an evidence or any type of proof or doubt except that we come with the truth and the best of explanation. They do not come with any method, meaning any of their evidences or their proofs or their attempts at interpreting something. They do not come with anything of that nature except that we come with the truth and the better a fuller explanation in refutation of that. فَالْقُرْآنُ كَفِيلٌ بِرَدْ أَيِّ بَاطِلٍ كَانٍ So the Qur'an, it is there as the one, or the Qur'an, it takes the responsibility of being able to refute all of the falsehood they come with. لَكِنِ الْأَفْهَامْ تَخْتَلِفْ بِالْقُوَّةِ وَالضَّعْفِ And this is what we mentioned last time. Even though everything is there in the Qur'an, the clear understanding, the aqeedah, the belief, it's there in the Qur'an. But not everybody will fully understand everything because the valleys are of different depths. The potholes are of different depths. So some people may understand all of those affairs and may understand how to refute that false aqeedah and the false beliefs they come with from the evidences of the Qur'an, they can do that. And other people maybe not because they don't have all that understanding of the Qur'an and they don't know where and how to find the evidences to refute those people of falsehood. فَيُعْطَى بَعْضُ النَّاسِ مِنَ الْقُوَّةِ مَا لَا يُعْطَاهُ غَيْرَهُ He says in the explanation, Ali Shaykh, some people are given a level of strength in their understanding that other people are not given. وَيُعْطَى بَعْضُ النَّاسِ مِنَ التَّوْفِيقِ مَا لَا يُعْطَاهُ غَيْرُهُ And some people are given that, that 
ability and success in being able to understand and comprehend to a level that maybe some others are not given. Some of the scholars of tafsir, they said, some of the scholars of tafsir, they said, this ayah, that they do not come to you with any evidence except that we come with the truth and the uh, correct explanation, that this ayah is comprehensive and general to every doubt and falsehood that they bring, the people of misguidance bring up until the day of judgment. That up until the day of judgment, nobody will be able to bring any falsehood except that the Quran rebukes and refutes whatever they come with. 1400 years now, the people of misguidance and innovation have come with their innovations and their misguidances. And yet, whatever they come with in whatever time, whatever century, whatever doubt, it is refuted by the evidences of the revelation. And it will continue to be like that up until the day of judgment. No matter what they bring, what misguidance, what evidence, then it will be rebuked by that which is in the revelation up until the day of judgment. And that is similar to the narration talking about the Ta'ifatul Mansura, Ta'ifatul Mansura, that aided sect, the saved sect, that will remain up until the hour is established, meaning the truth and the haqq, that true guidance and that revelation, it will not extinguish, it will remain, whether it is in small amounts or large amounts, it will remain up until the day of judgment. Then he goes on to say, وَأَنَا أَذْكُرُ لَكَ أَشْيَاءَ مِمَّا ذَكَرَ اللَّهُ فِي كِتَابِهِ and I will mention some things to you now from that which Allah has mentioned in His book. Jawaban likalamin ihtajjabihi al mushrikuna fi zamanina alayna. He says, Now I'll mention a few things to you from the Quran, from what Allah has mentioned in the Quran as a reply, as a response to the speech of the mushrikun who used it as an evidence against us, that there were mushrikun and they had certain speech and statements and doubts and evidences against us, the shaykh is saying. A shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab saying that there are mushrikun who have certain statements and speech and refutations against us. So I'm now going to mention to you 
some of that which is in the Qur'an from what Allah has mentioned as a rebuke and a reply and a response to these doubts and statements that they brought against us. This now indicates to you that everything we've done so far has basically been an introduction. Everything so far up to there has been an introduction into this. Because a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab rahimahullah ta'ala only now after all of that speech so far is saying now I'll mention to you some of these things and the refutations meaning now I'll mention to you the doubts and the replies and the refutations and the expositions of those doubts everything so far has been building up the basis and this is the Salafi methodology of learning the methodology of the scholars throughout the centuries if you want to be able to understand the Salafi Aqeedah the Aqeedah of Ahlul Sunnah Wal Jama'ah and you want to be able to understand what the people of innovation said and how to refute them then what is the methodology of doing so? It is not to go straight to the doubts of the people of innovation and look at the replies and the responses. That is not the methodology. The methodology is to initially understand the basics of the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah. So that when you then see the doubts of those who oppose Ahlul Sunnah, and you see the evidences to refute them, it makes sense. Because you have a basis to work off. If you don't have any idea of what the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah is in the first place, then you're not going to benefit as much going straight into doubts and uh, statements of the people of innovation and misguidance and how to refute them if you haven't even learned the proper basis of the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah first. So what he's done in that introduction is, highlighted some of the basics of the aqidah, highlighted the message of the prophets and the messengers, highlighted the message of tawheed that they came with, what that tawheed is. He's given us an overview to work off a basis to work off. Now upon that basis of understanding what the prophets and messengers came with and that the opposition to them wasn't in Rububiyyah, it was in the affairs of Al-Uluhiyyah. Understanding those points gives you a basis. Because now when we come to the doubts, you're going to see the doubts are not about the issue of Tawheed ar Rububiyyah, they are upon the affairs of Al-Uluhiyyah. And that's why he's clarified as a basis to start with that Tawheed isn't a Rububiyyah alone, it's with the other aspects and the opposition that the prophets and messengers had throughout the centuries was upon Al-Uluhiyyah. And now 
what we see, meaning at the time of the shaykh, the mushrikun, the opposition they are bringing, is within the affairs of al-uluhiyah also. So this is the way uh, that a person studies, you build a basis upon an affair, and then you can stretch out and branch out into other issues upon that basis, upon that grounding. So the, author, the uh, uh, explanation says, وَقَدَّمَ الْمُصَنِّفُ رَحِمَهُ اللَّهُ مُقَدَّمَةً نَافِعَةً فِي بَيَانِ حَقِيقَةِ دِينِ الْمُرْسَلِينَ وَمَا دَعُوا إِلَيْهِ That the author began with a very beneficial introduction clarifying to us the reality of the da'wah of the messengers and what they call to وَحَقِيقَةً Deen al-Mushrikeen wa ma kanu and clarifying to us the reality of what the Mushrikun were upon, their religion and what they were upon. لِيَعْلَمَ الْإِنسَانُ حَقِيقَةَ دِينِ الْمُرْسَلِينَ عِنْدَ وُرُودِ شُبْهَةِ So that a person has the basis of understanding of what the religion of the messengers was when it comes to these doubts now. Because if a person just thinks, La ilaha illallah, there is no God but Allah. Ar-Rububiyyah. He's not going to understand what the problem with the positions of the mushrikeen is in the first place. He's not going to fully grasp and understand what the problems are and why we need to refute them. If he thinks, Tawheed is about rububiyyah only. So the author has given us all of that so that you understand what the religion of the messengers is. وَبَيَّنَا أَنَّ مُشْرِكِي زَمَانِهِ هُمْ أَتْبَاعُ دِينِ الْمُشْرِكِينَ And he's clarified that the mushrikun during his time they are from the followers of those early mushrikeen. So then he says, فَنَقُول And so we say, جَوَابُ أَهْلِ الْبَاطِلِ مِنْ طَرِيقَيْنِ This book is a fantastic book to learn principles from. This now is breaking down those principles. He says, when it comes to all of the misguidances that the people bring against us, we reply to them in two ways. We reply to them in two ways. With all of the misguidance and the falsehood that comes upon us, that we encounter from them, we reply to them in two ways. Mujmal wa mufassal. One is in a generalized manner where you give them some general principles and general evidences. And the second, mufassal, where you break down the affairs with the specific evidences and refutations upon specific points. And that's very important because as you will come to see, if a person is unable 
to refute the doubts coming upon you that you're encountering with a detailed response because you don't know it. You don't know what the specific evidences are to refute those specific doubts. You may find yourself in that type of situation. Then at least you should know what the general response is and what the broad evidences are so that even with that general response you can shut the door in the face of the one who comes with misguidances even that general response shuts the door even if you're not able to give the specifics so he says there are these two points to remember one is a general response a broad response and the other is a specific response. Amal Mujmal. So as for the general response, Fahual Amrul Alim, then that is a great affair. Meaning a person shouldn't think that the general response is just as we say, just general, it's not it's not a big deal. It's not really the evidences. You shouldn't think of it that way. The general response is a response in and of itself. So, فَهُوَ الْأَمْرُ الْعَظِيمُ That is a great affair. Knowing how to present this general reply to them even. وَالْفَائِدَةُ الْكَبِيرَةُ لِمَنْ عَقَلَهَا And it is the great benefit for the one who understands it. For the one who understands how to rebuke the people of innovation and misguidance with these generalized responses, then it's a great benefit to that person, a great maslaha for that person. And that is the, ma the uh, method and the manner of giving a generalized response. Firstly, he mentions the ayah, هُوَ الَّذِي أَنزَلَ عَلَيْكَ الْكِتَابِ مِنْهُ آيَاتٌ مُحْكَمَاتٌ هُنَّ أُمُّ الْكِتَابِ وَأُخَرُ مُتَشَابِهَاتٌ فَأَمَّا الَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ زَيْغٌ فَيَتَّبِعُونَ مَا تَشَابَهَ مِنْهُ بِتِغَاءَ الْفِتْنَةِ وَبِتِغَاءَ تَأْوِيلِهِ وَمَا يَعْلَمُ تَأْوِيلَهُ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَقَالَ وَقَدْ صَحَّ عَنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم أَنَّهُ قَالْ إِذَا رَأَيْتُمُ الَّذِينَ يَتَّبِعُونَ مَا تَشَابَهَ مِنْهِ فَأُولَئِكَ الَّذِينَ سَمَّ اللَّهِ فَاحْذَرْهُمْ so what do we have here? We have the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He is the one who revealed the book. Revealed the book upon you. The Quran. The revelation. In it, there are ayat which are muhkamat. And this often is mentioned as clear-cut. They often say in English, what have they said? Is the translation there, Masin Khan? Clear-cut. 
There are those ayat which are clear cut, crystal clear. Hunna ummul kitab. They are the, the, the core of the book. They are the mother of the book. They are the basis of the book. Ummul kitab. وَأُخَرُ مُتَشَابِهَاتِ And then there are others that may be ambiguous. What's the word they use? Unclear. unclear. That there are others that may be unclear. So as for those who have in their hearts some misguidance, then they follow that which is unclear desiring fitna and desiring their interpretations and misguidance from it. And nobody knows that interpretation except Allah. This is an ayah you often hear and it is quoted often that there are ayat in the Qur'an which are muhkamat and there are ayat in the Qur'an which are mutashabihat. What does this mean then? Who can tell us what the muhkamat are and what the mutashabihat are? Anyone? Huh? So that's one possible answer. The muhkamat are those that are clear-cut, as they say. Clear-cut, understandable to everyone. No ambiguity with them. Clear-cut. They are the basis of the Qur'an. And the mutashabihat, those which are unclear. But this is the point now, what does it mean that there are ayat in the Qur'an that are unclear? You have to go to the sunnah that explains that. Anybody else? So the mutashabihat, the unclear, it does not mean, let's start with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that there are ayat in the Qur'an that make no sense, that are unclear, we don't know what's going on. They are unclear, it doesn't make any sense, that is not the meaning. All of the Qur'an is clear. All of it is guidance. All of it is understood in that way. Yes, there are sections that are mentioned like Alif Lam Meem, Alif Lam Ra, those kinds of things that Allah knows of their affair. But otherwise, the Quran as a whole, there are not any sections that we don't know what's the meaning of this and what is intended here. Nobody knows and it's completely ambiguous. That's not the meaning of mutashabihat. The Qur'an, all of it is clear. But the mutashabihat, it may be unclear relative to the person. 
relative to the person there may be certain ayat that are unclear and so those ayat which are unclear how do you get the clear understanding of them by returning them back to the other ayat which are muhkamat absolutely clear cut clear cut ayat and then you come across an ayah which isn't in your mind it's not clear cut it could mean this and it could mean that so how do you work out the tafsir of this ayah put it back into the context of the clear cut ayat and it will give you the meaning of this and that's why the best tafsir of the quran is tafsir al-quran bil-quran the best way to make tafsir of the quran is by using the quran itself you come across an ayah you want to find out what the tafsir of this ayah is check other parts of the quran maybe somewhere else other parts of the quran explain this ayah and there are certain books of tafsir that have been written by the scholars upon this method only they've given the tafsir of the ayat purely upon what they found in other ayat a famous example of that type of tafsir would be adwa'ul bayan by al-imam al-shanqidi adwa'ul bayan is one of the famous books of tafsir which is tafsir of the quran by the quran if you come across an ayah and you cannot find anywhere else in the quran clarifying and talking about the meaning or expanding upon the meaning of that ayah then you go to the authentic sunnah of the prophet that perhaps the Prophet ﷺ explained this particular ayah in a hadith somewhere. If you can't even find that, then you go to the the Sahaba, radiyallahu anhum, the statements of the companions. Maybe they talked about this ayah. Maybe they mentioned something about this ayah. So initially you look for it in the Quran. If not, then in the Sunnah. If not, then the Sahaba. And then if not, you perhaps go beyond that to the time of the Salaf, looking into their explanations of the Qur'an. So here, the Muhkamat are the clear-cut. The Mutashabihat are the ones that could potentially hold different meanings. And so to determine what their meanings are, you return them back into the context of the muhkamat. That's one of the principles of the general response. How? Imagine somebody comes to you now with some evidence, or an ayah from the Qur'an, and gives you some tafsir of it and says, this is what it means, and therefore it proves X, Y, and Z, some misguidance. Or he brings to you some hadith, and he says it's in Bukhari, maybe it is, but you've never heard of it in your life. But it's in Bukhari, and uh, established it's in Bukhari, but you've never heard of it. How are you going to reply to them with this principle? 
any evidence they bring to you, maybe you have no idea what this evidence is that they are trying to use for their misguidance, but you know their misguidance is a misguidance. So you know the evidence they are using, they must be using it incorrectly. How can you use this principle so far to give a general response to them? So that's on the right lines. They bring to you some evidence, some ayah, and they say that's a proof for X, Y, and Z. That's a proof for the Prophet's birthday. They bring you some hadith, and they say it's in Bukhari, it's in Muslim, it's this, it's that, and that's a proof for the Prophet's birthday. You've never heard of these evidences. So you don't know how to refute him upon those evidences specifically. You've never heard of them. But you can say to him, because you know celebrating the birthday is definitely wrong, so you know he's definitely misinterpreting something. You can say to him, these evidences that you're quoting, this ayah or this hadith, we need to take that back and put it into the context of the other evidences of the Qur'an and the Sunnah to work out whether this one is a proof for you or not. So then you can say to him, we have clear evidences, the muhkamat, like, man ahdatha fi amrina hadha ma laysa minhu Whoever innovates anything into our religion that is not from it, it will be rejected, you know that. You know other evidences, kullu bid'atin dhalala wa kullu dhalalatin finnar. You know that. So you say to him, okay, this one particular evidence you're quoting to me, I've never heard of it. But I do know X, Y, Z, these other general evidences. Put that into the context of all of these and how do you explain your evidence now? How does your evidence work in the context of all of these others telling us bid'ah is haram, impermissible, not allowed to innovate anything new? You tell him, Al-Yawma akmaltu lakum deenakum. On this day, I have completed for you your religion. You give him all of these evidences as a general reply that even though your particular specific evidence, I don't know, never heard of it, but I do know all of this general basis. How are you going to justify yourself upon this basis? How do you justify this evidence, whatever it is, Upon Al-Yawma Akmaltu Lakum Deenakum I have completed the religion Allah said How are you going to justify You can now add something to it So the point of this is Anybody brings something very specific to you And you don't know You give them the general principles of the religion The clear cut principles And you say to them We'll put this evidence of yours in context of all of these principles and evidences and how does it work then how does your evidence work now in the context of all of these clear-cut evidences because one of the methodologies of the people of innovation is exactly to do this type of thing which thing to pick out specific evidences from here and from there, 
and to use them independently as an evidence for their misguidance or whatever it is. Why do they have to do that? Because they will never be able to pick a generalized set of evidences and principles to support their evidence because there'll be no such thing. All they are ever going to be able to find is one specific ayah. Eyesights cannot comprehend him. Pick that one out. Let's stick with that and go with that. It says eyesights cannot comprehend Allah. So they make their position upon that. But when you put that into the context of all the other evidences, it becomes clear what that one means. They will never be able to come to you with a full context. Because if they do, they'll refute themselves from the very beginning. So the people of innovation always select. And you notice this, you'll notice it. When they come to you, they'll quote a hadith. There's a hadith in the musnad of something, something, uh, Ibn Abi Shayba, Bazar, or Abu Ya'la, something that you've barely heard of. There's a hadith in this book, and it says X, Y, and Z. And that's the evidence you can do this, and you can do that, and 2,000 raka'at this night, and all these things. Some singular, one particular hadith on one particular page, in one particular book somewhere, that's the evidence. That's what they'll do. You'll see it all the time. They'll quote you some random hadith from some random collection of books somewhere. And most of the time it won't even be authentic. And even if it is, that one selected narration or evidence, when you put it back into the context of the full shelf, then all of a sudden it becomes clear what they were trying to use it for isn't usable for that reason. So the people of innovation select evidences because that's all they can do. Select the odd evidences that by themselves, when you read those evidences by themselves, you think, okay, maybe it does show what they are saying. It's like uh, they give the example in the Quran, which means, Woe be to those who pray. Somebody now comes and quotes this to somebody who is not half of the Quran or even half of that two ayat. Says to him, look in the Quran it says, Woe be to the ones who pray. Why are you praying? What's going on? By itself, you take that ayah, you can see now the point here. The people of innovation do that. That's an obvious example. But that's how it works. They'll say, look, in the Qur'an it says, woe be to the ones who pray. We obviously know, everybody knows, you carry on and you read and you understand what's going on. But when a person doesn't know what the next ayah is, it's somewhere else in the middle of the Qur'an you haven't memorized, you don't know what the next ayah is, you don't know what the ayah before it was, or somebody quotes some random one hadith somewhere, you don't know what other hadith are in that same topic, then that one hadith or one ayah by itself, you can't reply to it. How are you going to reply to it when you don't know what goes with it specifically? So then you give the general reply. You say, okay, the ayah is there in the Quran, but we know with certainty 
Prayer is something beloved to Allah and you give them all the other evidences about prayer and about the reward of the prayer and all the evidences. So you know from that generality what he's trying to do there is wrong. Even if you've never memorized that uh, uh, surah and you don't know what comes next or behind, you know from the generalized evidences, you can rebuke and stop that person there. So this is the first principle he highlights. هُوَ الَّذِي أَنزَلَ عَلَيْكَ الْكِتَابِ مِنْ هُوَ آيَاتٌ مُحْكَمَاتٌ هُنَّ أُمُّ الْكِتَابِ وَأُخَرُ مُتَشَابِهَاتٌ So then he mentions after the ayah وَقَدْ صَحَّ عَنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمْ أَنَّهُ قَالْ إِذَا رَأَيْتُمُ الَّذِينَ يَتَّبِعُونَ مَا تَشَابَهَ مِنْهِ فَأُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ سَمَّ اللَّهِ فَاحْذَرُوهُمْ فَاحْذَرُوهُمْ If you see those who are following that which is unclear from it, meaning they are taking those ayat which could have different meanings, when you look at them by themselves, it's possible it means this and it's possible it means that. How would you know which one it means? by taking it and putting it into the context of the muhkamat. But they don't do that. يَتَّبِعُونَ مَا تَشَابَهَ They take those ayat which are maybe unclear by themselves and go with them. And do not bring them back into the context of the muhkamat. And so they run with whatever interpretation they've put onto those ayat and go with it without bringing them back to the muhkamat and then realizing what the correct interpretation of them is. So the Prophet ﷺ said, if you see the likes of those people, then be warned from them, meaning in two ways, be warned from them as individuals specifically, those people of innovation and misguidance doing that, and also be warned from their methodology. Don't fall into doing that type of thing yourself. Whereby you take those evidences that maybe are unclear in and of themselves, and you don't take them back to the muhkamat, and you run with interpretations upon those specifics alone. So do not fall into that methodology, and neither uh, fall into following the likes of the people, who follow that methodology. He gives an example then. مِثَالُ ذَلِكَ An example he gives. إِذَا قَالَ لَكَ بَعْضُ الْمُشْرِكِينَ If one of the mushrikeen or some of the mushrikeen say to you, أَلَا إِنَّ أَوْلِيَاءَ اللَّهِ لَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ that indeed the awliya of Allah, there is no fear upon them and neither do they grieve. The awliya of Allah, there is no fear upon them and neither do they grieve. Aw anna shafa'ata haq. And is that true or not? Absolutely. وَأَنَّ الشَّفَاعَةَ حَقٌّ And that intercession is real. True or false? True again. أَوْ أَنَّ الْأَنْبِيَاءَ لَهُمْ جَاهٌ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ 
Or they come to you and say, the prophets and messengers have status with Allah. True or false? True. أو ذكر كلاما للنبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يستدل به على شيء من باطله or he quotes any other statement from the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم to use it as an evidence for his falsehood وأنت لا تفهم معنى الكلام الذي ذكره and you maybe don't understand the specifics of the speech or the evidences that he's presenting to you. You don't understand the specifics of the evidences and the specifics of his argument and how he's trying to formulate that and how he's trying to defend his position from that argument and from those evidences. You don't understand the specifics of it maybe. But then you answer him with your statement in that type of scenario, that type of situation, answer him, إِنَّ اللَّهَ ذَكَرَ فِي كِتَابِهِ أَنَّ الَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ زَيْغِ يَتْرُكُونَ الْمُحْكَمُ وَيَتَّبِعُونَ الْمُتَشَابِهِ That Allah has mentioned in His book that those who have this disease in their hearts, this misguidance in their hearts, then they leave the muhkamat, they leave the clear cut, and they follow the unclear. وَمَا ذَكَرْتُهُ لَكَ وَمَا ذَكَرْتُهُ لَكَ مِنْ أَنَّ الْمُشْرِكِينَ يُقِرُّونَ بِالْرُبُوبِيَّةِ And that which I have mentioned to you, the Shaykh is now talking, and that which I have mentioned to you, that the mushrikun acknowledged ar-rububiyyah, wa annahu kaffarahum bita'alluqihim ala al-mala'ika, but that Allah declared them to be disbelievers because of their attachment to the angels, wal-anbiya and to the prophets, wal-awliya and to the righteous, ma'a qawlihim, with their statement that they used to say, هَاُولَاءِ شُفَعَاؤُنَا عِنْدَ اللَّهِ These are our intercessors with Allah. هَذَا أَمْرٌ مُحْكَمٌ بَيِّنٌ لَا يَقْدِرُ أَحَدٌ أَنْ يُغَيِّرَ مَعْنَاهُ وَمَا ذَكَرْتَهُ لِي أَيُّهَا الْمُشْرِكِ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ أو كلام النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لا أعرف معناه لكن أقطع أن كلام الله لا يتناقض وأن كلام النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لا يخالف كلام الله عز وجل You can say to him now these individuals who follow the unclear and they leave the clear. And then he says, that which I told you about the mushrikun, believing in the rububiyyah, and yet they were declared as disbelievers because of their connection and their calling upon the angels and the prophets and the awliya of Allah. Uh, whilst they said as their evidence, 
These are our intercessors with Allah. So when they said these are our intercessors with Allah, that is very clear cut that they are calling upon others besides Allah, that they are committing shirk. So now that is something which is clear cut, that they committed shirk in their practices. And they themselves declared, these are our intercessors with Allah. And so they called upon them and they supplicated to them and they sacrificed to them. That's clear cut. Now if they try to bring you some other evidence you've never heard of to try and prove that it's okay and what they do isn't shirk and their activities are not shirk, and you've never heard of the evidence they are using, you can tell them, but listen, whatever this evidence and whatever it is you're trying to use, the bottom line is, the mushrikun, they used to commit shirk by claiming, These are our intercessors, they committed shirk. No matter what evidence you're going to try and use now to defend your actions, to justify your actions, your actions ultimately are shirk. That's a generalized response. You don't know how to respond to his specific point, but you can tell him your actions on the whole, upon the generality of what's in the Quran, you are upon shirk. These actions of yours are shirk. And so what you've mentioned to me from the Quran or from the Sunnah, I don't know its meaning specifically. I don't understand that evidence specifically. But what I do know is, it will never mean something that contradicts anything else in the Quran. That we know for certain. The Quran is not going to contradict itself. So in one part of the Quran, Allah told us they held these others as their intercessors and they committed shirk. So now whatever he's trying to bring to you, you know it is not going to be anything that nullifies the fact that they used to commit shirk. So whatever it is, they are still going to be declared as kuffar and as mushrikeen having committed shirk. Because if the evidence he's bringing is proving that their actions are not shirk, then that would mean between this and that there's a contradiction. One part of the Quran telling us they committed shirk and they had intercessors, but now his evidence is a proof that they didn't. Now all of a sudden we have a contradiction. You can tell him, whatever your evidence is, I don't understand it, I don't know how to explain it. But I do know that you, talking to the mushrikun, the dialogue now, that you commit shirk, that Allah declared your actions as shirk, that you called upon intercessors and that is shirk. So now whatever your evidence is, it's not going to contradict what's in the other parts of the Quran. You've been declared as mushrikun with your actions. So whatever your evidence is, whatever you're trying to use and justify, it's not going to contradict the other part of the Qur'an and suddenly prove that you're muwahidun. 
and suddenly prove that you're not committing shirk. If it did, it would be a contradiction, and that cannot be. So as long as you know, the point he's making there then, as long as you know the fundamentals of Tawheed, for example, Kitab al-Tawheed, not the one we did, the normal Kitab al-Tawheed of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. If you knew all 50, 60 chapters there, and you knew the evidences of each chapter, now if somebody comes to you with some deviation, some misguidance regarding the affairs of Tawheed, even if you didn't know the specific thing he's talking about, you would have a general idea in which topic he is referencing, where his action falls into, and what the evidences for that topic are. And you would then be able to give him a generalized response on that affair. And that's why Kitab al-Tawheed is such an important and valuable book. Because this first answer we're talking about right now, it's basically there. If you knew Kitab al-Tawheed properly, 50-60 chapters, then you're in a position to be able to generally, almost everything that they bring to you, you can give them at least something of a general reply from those topics of Tawheed. And the evidences of Tawheed even if you don't know the specifics of what they are bringing to you. So that's the first thing he highlights there. He says, وَهَذَا جَوَابٌ جَيِّدٌ سَدِيدٌ He says, this is a very good upright methodology, a very good upright response to them. وَلَكِنْ لَا يَفْهَمُهُ إِلَّا مَنْ وَفَّقَهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى فَلَا تَسْتَهِنْ بِهِ But this is not something understood by anyone except for the one whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives that ability to comprehend, to recognize these principles and how to reply to the people of deviation. So don't belittle it. Don't think the general reply is easy. I already know how to give the general reply. Do not think that and do not belittle that. فَإِنَّهُ كَمَا قَالَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى وَمَا يُلَقَّاهَا إِلَّا الَّذِينَ صَبَرُوا وَمَا يُلَقَّاهَا إِلَّا ذُو حَظٍ عَظِيمٍ That this only comes to those upon patience and those who have been given that good share. It is tawfiq from Allah that you have understanding and ability and that you recognize how to repel the doubts that come, how to repel the misguidances that come. So this is the opening method the Shaykh he speaks about, that you understand the general reply to them, which is that there is never going to be any contradiction in the Qur'an. Whatever ayah you're using to try and prove some shirk, it's impossible. Because if it was true, and you could prove your shirk, then that would be clear contradiction in the Qur'an. If there was ayat proving shirk, so your ayat could never be proving what you're trying to prove. Even though I can't refute your evidences or how to explain them properly, I know they are not in their right place. Because I know in the Qur'an the generalities 
of Tawheed and Shirk and the principles and the ayat as a whole. And therefore I know your argument is false, even if I can't break it down. That is one general response. The other general response was that whatever specific evidence you're trying to use, we're going to go and put it back into the context of the muhkamat and all the clear-cut evidences, the Qur'an, the sunnah, will put this one hadith you're trying to quote in amongst the 20 others, and then we'll see if it still proves what you're trying to prove. And of course it will not, because the only way it proves what they are trying to prove is when you don't look at anything else related to it. When you look at all of the rest of the narrations related to it, it breaks down and it becomes clear their interpretation is false. So that is the general reply, and then next week, insha'Allah, we'll begin with the detailed replies. So from next week, it does become a little bit more difficult, because the detailed replies, you do have to focus on what the Shaykh is saying, how he's saying, that you reply to certain doubts, what evidences, what methods of argument against them. They are detailed issues. So insha'Allah ta'ala, we'll begin with those from next week at the same time. Wa sallallahu ala Muhammad ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Any questions or anything else? The benefit or the hikmah, when we talk about the hikmah of Allah doing certain things, firstly it should be understood, we do not know the hikmah of everything. Some actions, they are known as ibadat mahbah. And they are the ones where the scholars say it is an act of worship. For example, wudu. Wudu is a famous example. They say, wudu, what is the wisdom? If you ask like the wisdoms, what is the wisdom in wudu? What is the wisdom in the action of worship, the wudu? What is the wisdom? Some scholars have said, we don't know. Some scholars have said, we don't know what the wisdom in wudu is. It is an ibadah mahdah, according to some scholars. That it is an act of worship for the sake of it being an act of worship. Allah has told you it's an act of worship, so it's an act of worship that you do as an act of worship. What's the wisdom behind it? We don't know. There are certain actions that the scholars say are like that. Why would they say that about the wudu? They say as an example, Imagine now you have, just as an example, you have a shower for an hour. One hour with soap and everything, you're washing yourself completely clean. 
and then at the end of it you make wudu. You're as clean as you could be now. All your body, everything full, one hour, the full bath gone. Body as clean as it could be, and at the end you make your wudu. Then when you make your wudu after the one hour shower, and you close the, the tap, and you step out, just as you're stepping out, wind breaks. So now, one foot is outside, one foot is still inside, and the wind has broken. Small wind, tiny wind has broken. What do you have to do? Make wudu again. Why? Have you become dirty? Have you become dirty? Have you become... Is there, is there uncleanliness upon you? Tiny bit of wind broke. You washed yourself for an hour straight. You're as clean as you can be still. You are as clean as you could be still. But regardless, you're now going to have to again wash those body parts. Has your face become dirty from that tiny wind you broke? Has your head become dirty? You need to wipe it again. Have your arms become dirty? Your feet? Have any of those body parts become dirty because of that small wind that you broke? No. But you still have to wash them all again. That's why the scholar said, you can't just say the wisdom behind wudu is cleanliness. That's part of it. To be clean for the prayer, etc. That's part of it. But can you say that's the ultimate wisdom in wudu? Many scholars say no. Because of that type of example. The same with here now, possibly, possibly certain things, the way they've been done, we may not have a specific breakdown of why. Why has it been done in this way and why has it been done in that way? Perhaps from the general replies, you could say, for this test, the test of those who will go astray, following those unclear ayat without taking them back, to the clear-cut ones, a test for the people who will be upon purity and sincerity and who will not. From the general replies, perhaps there is a test in that too. Perhaps there is a test for the people in that. Anything else? Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. <clears throat> Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله حيا على الصلاة حيا على الصلاة حيا على الفلاح حيا على الفلاح الله أكبر الله أكبر لا إله إلا الله
Who was asking? Hmm. Oh, sorry, what time is prayer? I don't think they are mutually exclusive. You give them uh, a meaning of the Quran, the Muhsin Khan or something with the proper meanings and then even in the footnotes where there are further explanations so that even if something is unclear, there's a bit more detail or they give you a hadith that clarifies it a bit more. And that's why the Muhsin Khan and Taqiyuddin one is a good one. Give them that, it's the Quran, to read those meanings alongside other books, introductory and basic books. But I don't think there's reason uh, uh, to say that we shouldn't give them because of this reason or that. They should be given that, meanings and then other books alongside it. Mm. Anything else? Just, uh, came across um, a reminder about um, those that go to teach or um, study in Masjid Nabawi. It's the equivalent or on a similar level of um, is it jihad. And that, if correct me if I'm mistaken, and then with regards to the general mosques, the general seeking of knowledge, and then the teaching, or what's the reward for that? Rewards generally for these gatherings of knowledge are mentioned. The easiest one everybody will know in the 40 hadith of Imam al Nawawi about the rewards of these gatherings. There is not a group of people who come together in a house from the houses of Allah except that the serenity comes upon them the mercy of Allah encompasses them, the angels uh, surround them. Uh, and then it mentions in the, another narration, The angels lower their wings for the student of knowledge. The students of knowledge, those gaining knowledge. The angels lower their wings for them in humility for what they are doing. The angels are pleased at what these students of knowledge are doing. They lower their wings before them. So there are many uh, examples and narrations about the gatherings of knowledge and the virtues of knowledge and the specific physical gatherings. And that's why Sheikh Zayd al-Madkhali also said that uh, if a person can genuinely not make it, not the one who can make it but chooses not to, but the one who genuinely cannot make it physically, maybe because they live in some part of the world thousands of miles away, the radio is the only way they have, or some other reason, then those people who genuinely cannot make it, it's impossible for them to physically make it, then the Shaykh said, inshallah, when they tune in, they get the reward of the physical gathering as well. Inshallah. For the ones who genuinely physically cannot make it, so they can only listen online, then inshallah, he said, 
it is hoped they are given the reward of the physical gathering as well. But you can refer to that narration regarding the uh, gatherings of knowledge and the explanations of that, of the mercy that uh, encompasses those gatherings and the serenity that descends upon them and the angels that encompass them. Last one then. That's everyone, because the narration says, كُلُّكُمْ رَاعٍ وَكُلُّكُمْ مَسْؤُولٌ عَنْ رَعِيَتِهِ All of you are shepherds, and all of you are responsible for your flock. The scholars have mentioned, of course, that refers to the father and his household, but similarly, the mother is included, that she has a responsibility over the tarbiyah and the upbringing of her children too. So in that narration, in the generality of it, the women are included. The women are also upon responsibility for their children, and particularly the women with their daughters. They have a responsibility for their tarbiyah too. So they are in the generality included in that narration too. We'll have to leave it there then. The prayer is in one minute. Inshallah, we'll continue next week.